Good morning, everybody. Uh, for those who don't know me, my name is Paul. I have the privilege of leading the team that oversees uh, New Life Community Church, and it really is a great privilege to be preaching the word this morning, especially coming out, as uh, we've already shared, out of a significant weekend together where we gathered with many other church families to worship and really to be energized, I think, for that m- great mission that we carry together to see lives transformed by Jesus and for people to be building their lives upon Jesus. And we had a great weekend uh, together. I think, as Jackie shared about the theme being unshakable, I was particularly struck by the message on the presence of God, that an unshakable church is one that has an unshakable God in their midst and going before them. And I also thought the the message on actually uh, from Ezekiel chapter 47, the river coming out from... um, Ezekiel's vision flowing out from the sanctuary, going out to the sea, going out from a Sunday into uh, where we gather here and out into the Monday, bringing life and blessing and fruitfulness and ultimately seeing many kinds of people from all different walks of life being caught up into a life with Jesus and a home with church and family. So before we even begin to look at God's word together, I just want to pray for the presence of Jesus to be here with us as God's community, God's family, uh, across all our locations. So, Father, just thank you, uh, Lord, that what separates us uh, from any other community is your presence with us, Lord. We would be nothing without you. And so, God, we invite you to come, Lord, afresh. Lord, I know that you are here with us, but I thank you, Lord God, that, uh, Lord, where two or three are gathered together, there you are in the midst. There's something more significant about the people of God being gathered together that you love. And so, pray, would you come inhabit Father, Lord, this place, would you inhabit it across uh, Fornibridge and Verwood, Lord God, and Father, wherever actually any of the church gathering this morning, Lord, may your presence be made known, I pray, uh, as, uh, as we worship together, as, as we look to go out from this Sunday into a Monday, Lord, to bring, uh, Lord, fruitfulness and life, Lord, as those who have been changed by Jesus, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. So one of my... Um, one of my favorite things to do on a weekend, and one what I'll be looking forward to do, doing this afternoon, other than obviously be with church family, is to watch Match of the Day. Okay, now for those who don't know, Match of the Day is a program that shows all the highlights of the Premier League football matches that happen across the weekend. Now my family knows out of years of experience that for this very brief 90 minutes of time, it's very difficult to get my attention or any actually good sense out of me whilst I'm watching. Anyone else like that? Okay, it's good. There's at least two of you. One on John, one on Mark. I appreciate that. And the reason for this is that because I am completely tuned in to watching football in this moment. I am tunnel visioned. And I have a very... I really do have very little idea of what's happening around me. Now, some might say, how's that any different from usual? (laughs) And you might be right, actually. But in this scenario, football in this moment has my attention. And that really shines a little light on what it is to worship. When we give our utmost attention 
to the things that we declare are of first importance to us. And when we sacrifice other things in life for the sake of that which we have decided is of more value, it's much more than match of the day on a Saturday night. It's really an everyday thing. It's a morning, noon, and night thing. And when we look at God's word together today, we are going to explore this subject of worship and the object of that worship through three headings. Worship that costs, worship that reveals, and worthy of worship. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to turn to Mark chapter 14. We're continuing our series in the Gospel of Mark. And we're going to be reading through verses... Oh, no, actually, we're just going to read through each section as we go, okay? So we're going to read verses 1 to 2 from Mark chapter 14. Verse 1, it says, It was now two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to arrest him by stealth and kill him. For they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar from the people. So we are now, context-wise, drawing very close to the betrayal and the arrest of Jesus. And the chief priests and the scribes, they want him erased. They want him silenced and have his name blotted out of history to be remembered no more. Little knowing that actually what they're doing is playing their part in the narrative that must happen for the sake of the world. And that actually in attempting to erase his name from history, they would end up playing their part in elevating his name for all time. For as sure as death was coming to Jesus, resurrection would follow. And that would change everything. The context is two days before the Passover, followed by the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And both of these events, events were instructed by God as a means to remember. Remember his mighty hand to rescue the people of Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and that they're also they were a people uniquely set apart as holy unto God. And you'll find the context of that Passover in Exodus 12. And here in Exodus 12, you know, God is about to pour out judgment upon all people, in this case, the Egyptians and the Israelites, but God gives the means for the people to be spared from that judgment. And he calls the people, the Israelites, to gather a healthy lamb per household on the 10th day of what becomes actually Israel's first month of the year. And on day 14, the Israelites were to kill and roast the lamb to be eaten with unleavened bread. The blood of the lamb was to be sprinkled on the doorposts of every household. And for every household that had the blood of the lamb on its doorposts, God would pass over and his judgment would be held back. All because of the lamb. Now the deal with unleavened bread is that it's basically flat bread bread without the raising agent in it. 
So like cakes without baking soda, I guess balloons without air, you know, it's, it's leaven in the Bible was a way of describing sin, those things that act in contrast to God's heart. And so here, God asks of his people in this Passover and unleavened, Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days to rid your house of leaven. It was a way of helping the people to remember that they are especially, specially set apart for God, holy to him, and that we should be intentional about cleaning house, removing that in our lives which acts in contrast to God's ways and God's heart. As it says in 1 Peter 1.16, since it is written, God says, you shall be holy for I am holy. So the Passover becomes a remembrance moment and a reset moment for the people of God to start the year afresh being a people set apart for him. Which is all the more significant as we are heading towards in this scripture the moment where Jesus and his disciples are going to gather together in that upper room and share this precious Passover meal together. We will get to that, but we're going to kick off our focus on worship by starting with looking at worship that costs. So that's the context, two days before the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So I'm going to read from verses 3 onwards to verse 9. And while he, that is Jesus, was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, he, as he was reclining at table... A woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. And she broke the flask and poured it over his head. And there were some who said to themselves indignantly, Why was the ointment wasted like that? For this ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. But Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you want, you can go and do good for them. But you will not always have me. She has done what she could. She has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. When the woman breaks the flask and pours out this perfumed ointment upon the head of Jesus, she's pouring out about a year's wages over him. Literally, it's a very costly act. And it's done in order to lavishly bless, to demonstrate that she has chosen to give herself to something infinitely more valuable. It's like having that fine-aged wine that you keep for a special moment. And then really realizing that what really crowns that moment is the person that you share it with. In Jesus, the woman had found a greater worth than any of her material possessions. And this moment is a, a Holy Spirit-fueled honoring of Jesus. And it teaches us something about the nature of worship. Worship is costly. Now, this isn't about how shiny or expensive the gift is, it's not even necessarily about material possessions. It's really about the heart behind the decision. It says that all I have to offer falls short compared to the treasure that I've discovered. That these things that we thought mattered most in life 
are actually now things that matter less when I compare it with you. And in light of what I've received, in terms of the grace that's been given to us by Jesus, what I can give now is only a token of my appreciation. Worship says to Jesus, you can have it all. Have you ever found that the, um, the best expression of love have, uh, has a sacrificial element to it? You know, when someone gives you their coat to keep you warm or dry, when someone takes the afternoon off work to help you keep that hospital appointment, when someone chooses to switch off match of the day in order to watch something that you both want to watch, just saying. It's the cost, isn't it, that elevates the other above yourself and shows them a kindness or an adoration or a devotion that speaks much higher than any other means. On a practical note, and I think this is important for those who want to demonstrate a heart of worship and show their love for Jesus, Jesus says in verse 8 that she has done what she could. She worshipped Jesus, and that worship was costly, but it was within her means. She did what she could, and she didn't do what she could not. And that's very important. God wants you in those special moments to give your sacrificial best out of what you have, your capacity, your time, your gifting, your finance, your material possessions, out of what you have and out, not out of what you don't have. You do what you can, and you don't attempt to do what you can't. There's this great scene in the... Uh, Joe and I are working through the US version of the uh, series of The Office at the moment. And it's Christmas time, and everyone does a secret Santa. And there's a $20 in this case, $20 limit. But the manager, he decides to pop a $400 iPod into the secret Santa. Okay. Which is an incredibly expensive gift, and essentially done, compared to everything else. And here's the biblical moral of the story, okay? Don't look at the person next to you and think, I've got to give what they've got to give. God loves the best of you and your heart, and he knows what that is. It doesn't need to be compared with anyone else. It can be inspired by others, but it doesn't have to match others. For what can you truly offer God? He doesn't need anything. He doesn't even need your worship, but he does love it. As Jesus says, why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing. Okay, let's uh, just pick up one more element about this section because there is a little bit more at work than this beautiful act of worship. As God does, he is outworking, outworking his purposes and the woman's story is caught up into this grand narrative that God has written, which for everyone here, by the way, full disclosure, your story is not your own story. It's not just your own story. Your story is caught up into a much bigger narrative that God has written. And you might not recognize that at this stage in your life, but that doesn't make it any less true. Jesus says to the woman in verse 8 that she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. Now, we're going to look at that nature of anointing because she pours the nard, which is this precious, costly ointment, over the head of Jesus. And it runs down, it will run down his face 
and through his beard. So I want us to turn very briefly to Psalm 133, where we find something of a parallel and help us reflect to something of the significance of what is happening here. Reasonably well-known psalm, it says, Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion, for there the Lord is commanding the blessing, life forevermore. It is like the precious oil on the head running down the beard on the beard of Aaron. Aaron was the brother of Moses and the first designated high priest by God for the people of Israel. The role of the high priest, amongst other things, was to enter the most holy place, the place of God's presence and of his word once a year to atone for the people of Israel. Now, his appointment, Aaron's appointment as high priest, is sealed by the anointing of oil that runs down his head and through his beard. The anointing oil, it consecrates him, sets him apart in order that he may fulfill this special task of interceding and atoning for and on behalf of the people of Israel. So in noting Jesus' language of anointing, we see that in this moment with the woman, there is more at play more than just a moment of costly worship, but symbolic of something else, a public declaration and preparation before the audience of the disciples of another high priest, one who is being set apart and prepared to fulfill a special task, one where this high priest would intercede and atone in a way that Aaron could not. The anointing upon him was more. The grace upon him was more. The bandwidth to save and rescue and to atone was more. And the cost for such a victory was going to be more. Uh, interesting one. Note, it says in Psalm 133 verse 1, how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Let's just round off at worship being costly. When the church family gathers in unity, brothers and sisters to, in Christ together of one heart making every effort to honour one another. When this happens, this is like an alabaster jar being poured out. It is like an act of worship. It is the honour of the one, it is in honour of the one who went in on our behalf, in honour of the one who has and can make us right with God. Like the alabaster jar, this type of worship can be costly. Unity at times can be costly. It's not always easy. Why does the preacher keep on having used to use football illustrations? You know, yeah, you know, I have to make every effort to listen to him. You know, <laughs> unity genuinely can be costly, but it is an act of worship that is like an alabaster oil that pours down the head and brings blessing. In making every effort to be a blessing to your brother and sister, as you gather here as God's church has found, this is a wonderful pouring out of precious worship to God. Even before we begin to sing a word, 
when we enter this place, being in unity and being a blessing to one another, you begin a wonderful act of worship. You know, I'm not actually sure if we can say that worship is really worship without it being costly. But it's the kind of cost that, that you love to give because in Jesus you have found something infinitely of greater worth. Okay. Next time, worship that reveals. Let's read the next few verses together in Mark 14. So we're now going to look at verses just 10 to 11. It says, Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money, and he sought an opportunity to betray him. Okay. Here we're going to look at really the way that worship can reveal or expose something unhealthy that's potentially happening underneath the surface. So Judas, he really, he's in the presence of this, this event that happens with the women in the alabaster jar, and he really can't handle it. He can't handle this lavish expression of worship. And he wasn't the only one. So the disciples also, other disciples also expressed their disappointment that the ointment was not sold and the monies distributed to the poor. You know, there was this kind of sense for some that it was a waste of resources. But I think I'm just going to go out on a limb here and I say it's likely that Judas is leading the charge, okay? In the Gospel of John chapter 12, we understand the reason why Judas strongly objected to this lavish expression of worship. And the great reveal is that Judas really didn't actually care about the poor, but rather about himself. In fact, Judas was the caretaker of the money, and he was also lining his own pockets with it. This wonderful, outrageous act of worship, it makes Judas uncomfortable, it makes him squirm, it agitates him. Why? Because he's going to miss out. And so he delivers this reasonable argument that some of the, I think, the other disciples, they can get behind this, and it makes his concern sound legitimate. Why wasn't this money given to the poor? Now, interestingly enough, I'm pretty sure that Jesus sees right through this, but the time to fully expose the heart of Jesus, I'm sorry, Judas, had not yet come. So Jesus took the opportunity right there and then to teach them all, rather than point the finger. So I think that's something we have to bear in mind, that worship can reveal where the heart is at. It sheds a light on things that are concealed, especially matters of the heart. For the woman, you can see that her, uh, the object of her affection is Jesus. The alabaster jar, an extension really of her heart for him. Yet for Judas, you quickly see where the heart is at and the, objection, and the object of his affection is not Jesus, but money. And in missing out on this opportunity, Judas immediately seeks another way to make up for his loss. You see, worship is costly. And in this case, in worshipping money, Judas was willing to give up Jesus for that, the thing that he most loved. So here's the thing. Worship can help us understand where our heart is at and what ultimately holds our greatest attention. 
Jesus doesn't take the opportunity to single Judas out, and I don't think really that's our job to either, to single others out. Well, I do think it's a really helpful personal health check so that in the context of worship, the way that we give our time and our energies, our gifting, our finance, our praise, we understand what is truly holding our gaze, what we are really giving our heart and attention to. And that can be a little bit of a finger on the pulse moment for an individual or maybe several individuals here, you know. And that's okay, you know, you, opportunity to come before God and actually you might need to do that and just say, look, I'm sorry, I know I've sidelined you for a while. There are other things I've given my greatest attention to, but right here, right now, I'm going to pour myself out afresh to you and say, Jesus, once again, you are worthy of it all. Okay. Let's bring this all together and look at our final section. We're going to look at worthy of worship, verses 12 to 25. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover. And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and ready. There prepare for us. And disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me who is eating with me. They began, to begin, they began to be sorrowful and say to him one after another, Is it I? He said to them, Is it one of the twelve who is one who is dipping bread into the dish with me? Oh, sorry, he says, sorry, he said to them, it is one of the twelve, one who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. You know, how do you feel now, Judas? You know, that's going to be a big challenge. And as they were eating, worship is costly, yeah? And as they were eating, he took bread and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to them and said, take this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he given thanks to, given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, "This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly, I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God." So, Jesus, he gathers his disciples into an upper room to intimately share this Passover meal. And this will be their final meal together before Jesus is taken away from them, arrested. And we are really drawing near to this crucial moment, this historical milestone, like no other, of crucifixion and resurrection. And my heart in bringing this together really is to show something of the significance of this meal in the upper room, not just for his disciples then, but for us today, here and now. For we're going to, together as a church family, break bread and drink wine together 
in remembrance of him as Jesus asked us. And we're going to share something of this upper room moment in light of the way God would have us discover something of the richness of what it meant when Jesus broke the bread and shared the wine. All the while knowing these events were drawing near. And we'll do that by reflecting upon the scriptures that we've covered. And that will hopefully help us move neatly from looking at the subject of worship into casting our gaze upon the object of our worship and why he is worthy of it. So here we go. Jesus says, take the bread. Here we go. Jesus takes the bread, he blesses it, and he breaks it and says, take, this is my body. I would grab the bread now and actually do it for you, but I feel I'd make a huge mess on the floor. So I went, I'm breaking it. It's imaginary breaking it. He takes a cup then, gives thanks, shares it with his disciples and said, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Let's remind ourselves of the context. If we go back to the significance of the Passover meal, Jesus has taken the unleavened bread, which represents his body, and he breaks it. Now, if we remember in this case, leaven, this raising agent in the bread, it was removed not only from the bread, but from the whole household. Leaven represented the sin of Israel and its ability to rise up and permeate the whole household like it would a piece of bread. And so God, he asks the people to remove it as a reminder of where he, he has set them apart to be a holy people. And when Jesus talks of the bread being his body, he is saying that unleavened bread represents him. It has no raising agent in it. There is no sin in him. And this sinless body is going to be broken. Of the wine that he shares, we are now thinking of the blood of the lamb poured out and marked on the doorposts of each household. This is so the judgment of God will pass over every family home marked by the blood of this unblemished lamb. In the early days of Jesus' ministry, John the Baptist, he sees Jesus approaching him and cries out, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John identifies Jesus as the Lamb, this unblemished, sinless Lamb, who was also the unleavened bread that was to be broken. The goalposts were going to be changed. A new covenant between God and man would be established. His blood, the blood of the Lamb of God, would provide a greater covering, secure a greater guarantee that would stretch out across the whole world for anyone who would turn to him. His body broken, his blood shed. Moving back to that scene in Bethany with the women in the alabaster jar, this act of worship was costly, but the coming cost for God would be even greater. Interesting, in that upper room moment, Jesus uses this language of being broken and poured out. In the same way that the woman breaks the jar and pours out this offering of precious ointment. And Jesus in that upper room was showing the disciples, showing us today, how he would offer himself. That he would be broken and poured out like this ointment. A precious and costly fragrant offering out of love for his heavenly Father and of the world. On the one hand, like the disciples, we might say, 
Why the cross? The cost is too high. On the other hand, God would say, he has done a beautiful thing. And finally, let us not forget that in this act of worship from the woman, she also symbolizes the anointing of Jesus, the great high priest, the one who enters the holy place on our behalf that we may be atoned for. And as he was anointed in preparation for the task, so in his pouring out of himself as a fragrant offering for us, we too, for every believer, are anointed as priests before God. 1 Peter 2.9 says, You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Through the pouring out of himself, we have received that anointing to join with him in the most holy place, the presence of God, that we may have fellowship with God and be equipped for the task ahead of proclaiming his excellencies to all. The object of our worship is the unleavened bread that was broken, the Passover lamb whose blood covers us. He is the costly fragrance that was broken and poured out, and he is the great high priest who goes in before God on our behalf and anoints in order that we may join with him in that holy place, that we too would have friendship and fellowship with God. So that's what we're going to do together now. We're going to come to that upper room together. We're going to break of the bread together and drink of the wine together and share this meal together in the presence of Jesus. And then we'll do what the disciples did after they shared bread and wine together. It says, before they head out, to Gethsemane, verse 26, they sung a hymn and they worshipped together. So we're going to take the opportunity. It's, it's, in, in, in the upper room, in the middle, they're just doing it naturally, isn't it? It seems such a shame that you have to give practical direction after, isn't it? It kind of spoils the moment. <clears throat> but the table is here. I've, I've laid it here and I was thinking, oh, I can just move it now. I fear for it to be moved, okay? So it is, you've got the grape juice, you've got the wine, you've got the bread, you've got the gluten-free. It's all there, and we're just going to take bread and wine together as family. And if you're here and you don't know Jesus, you don't feel that you have to participate in this. Okay? It says, Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me. And uh, I think this is a precious, precious tradition that we carry as a church family. Uh, and you don't feel that you have to be pressured to partake in that. But we do it because of him who is broken for us to restore right relationship with us and that we may come with him into, his pre- into God's presence. So should we stand together? Thanks. Jesus also didn't have to take it out of a co-op bag either, did he? (laughs) Thanks, Doug. (laughs) Okay. What a privilege it is, Lord Jesus, to come in remembrance of you. And as as your body, as your church family, 
Um, we just want to thank you. You are that unleavened bread that was broken. That you are the lamb whose blood covers us. That you are the one who poured himself out like a costly offering. That was a sweet fragrance to the Father. And that you are that anointed high priest who goes on our behalf and has invited us in, covered us, anointed us, that we may enter in as well. You prepared the way. And we thank you now that that's the reality in which we live now, us with you in your presence. Thank you, there's a greater reality of that to come, a future hope that we share when we, we see today in part, one day we shall see in full. But right here, right now, Lord Jesus, I just, um, I pray that, Father, we'd have a precious moment of remembering you. So, Lord Jesus, we thank you for your body that was broken, and we thank you for your blood that was shed, and we honor you. In Jesus' name, amen. So, at any point, guys, you know, just uh, feel free to come and do it, and you might have to sort yourselves out a little bit. But we're family, we can do that. We can serve one another, bless one another, and um, 